Welcome to Talaterra, a podcast about freelance educators working in natural resource fields and environmental education. Who are these educators? What do they do? Join me and let's find out together. This is your host, Tanya Marion. Today, my guest is Tina Demirjen, artist, educator, business leader, author, and principal at Poetry Consults. Tina's specialty is partnership development, business leadership, writing, and fundraising. She also facilitates workshops at schools, nonprofits, museums, libraries, and community centers. Tina uses poetry and creative strategies to build sustainable partnerships, to promote an organization's mission, and to engage board members and stakeholders. Today, Tina will help us see how poetry can be used to view the world in new and creative ways. How does Tina use poetry as a tool for community building? How does she work with multi-generational audiences? Let's find out. Thank you, Tina, for stopping by the podcast to just talk about poetry and making uh, new connections with uh, nature and the environment and with people and with place as well. You're very welcome. This is one of my favorite topics. So, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, May I ask you to introduce yourself to listeners? My name is Tina Demirjian. I am a poet and a teacher and facilitator of poetry workshops. I have had the gift of having the opportunity to teach for 30 years and also to write poetry. I came to this in my late 20s, and it was a gift because I never thought that I could write. And that is why I work in the community, whether it's in schools, in companies, in nonprofits, or with individuals, to engage and empower everyone who comes through my class. So that's, that is my mission. That is how I approach each class that I'm in. And I value writing and I value editing and I value reciting. So I work on all of those with all my students, no matter their age. So I'm so glad to be here and share some of my journey with you and your guests and your participants. No, thank you. Yes, thank you. Now I've taken your first so listeners know I've taken your workshop and have read some of your poems. You have a quiet and insightful way of observing the the world. You definitely observe nature differently than I do. I have what I'm calling uh, right now as a, a field guide thinking. <laughs> I have field guide thinking. That's my approach to nature. You definitely see things differently. What is your earliest memory of enjoying nature? My earliest memory? I grew up in New Jersey in the 60s and 70s. And I recall several, several things come up for me. One, we lived on a dead-end road 
in Waldwick, New Jersey. <laughs> and we had a little uh, woods nearby. Uh, we would always go through or play around. I am, was very much shaped by the winters. I loved, of course, snow days <laughs> from school. And I recall our birch tree in the front being able to bend all the way down to the ground and be embedded in ice. And I remember this, the seeds of the dogwood tree also being embedded in ice and being fascinated by their beauty. And the other, I will say, is going to the beach. You know, we would go down to the Jersey Shore <laughs> and I loved being at the beach. I loved the smell. I loved the sound. I remember always having, you know, having car sickness, the two hours it took to drive. But I knew that the last 10 minutes as we got closer to the ocean, I was going to feel better. And I just loved being able to open the windows and just enjoy the breeze and know that I was going to be well and I was going to enjoy being there. And, and, and I have to say, one of the things that I do now when I go to the beach, <laughs> because it's loud with the waves, is I recite the poems I've memorized into the ocean. And I find that very freeing. I don't know if anyone can hear me, <laughs> but that's what I do. <laughs> it doesn't bother me at all. Um, the waves and the people are loud enough. And actually, even if there's no one there, I still do it. Mm -hmm. And it's a very freeing, uh, it's a very visceral experience. And I actually wanted some of my um, students who are new immigrants, of course, we can't do that now, to go do that with me so that they could recite their poems so that it can be heard kind of across the ocean. So <laughs> that's how my first memories have expanded into my current ones. <laughs> <laughs> so may I ask, would you be willing to share a short poem that you would recite? To the ocean, you know. Oh, you, you you don't have to. No, no, that's okay. I should have expected this question, <laughs> and let me see if I can do that. How I find my Jersey accent. It happens when snow melts in early spring. Leaves toys to be find found behind swing sets and rose bushes. Something about warmth opens us like a field, the way pleasure does. We slant in bed and hum, slant the way stars lean forward, the way a word greets me at the tip of my tongue. I carry my accent the way I carry myself, take her out when I feel funny or too tired. I cup the O in my mouth and say coffee and return like the snow in New Jersey. Wait to be found again, like a compass pointing home. Thank you for sharing that with us. <laughs> You're welcome. When did you realize that nature was important to you? Hmm. You know, 
there's that old adage, you know, stop and smell the roses, right? Um, but there's a reason for it because especially now uh, with all the social media, it's so easy not to be quiet. And I think that when I started to write, I started to pay attention to moments and those moments happen so much in nature. I think it's made up of moments just like we are. And so, for example, boy, I don't think I could remember this poem by heart, but it's just over there on my bookshelf. Um, I call it Two Dying Bees. And I think later on, I realized, I think that they were flies, but I thought they were bees. And they were, they were slowly disintegrating. And I would watch it each day as they changed. And I was fascinated by that. And it's so interesting because yesterday when I was doing the dishes, looking out the window, we live on the second floor. All of a sudden, a bee actually came right against the screen as if something sort of pushed it there. And I looked at it and I thought, hmm, why is, why is she there and just not moving? And I thought, okay, I understand. And when I woke up this morning, the first thing I did was to go see if she was still there. And she was. And I thought, why would she decide to be vertical when she knows she might be dying? Like, it's like, those are the questions I ask myself. Doesn't she know maybe she'll fall? I don't know. Um, but you know I'm going to write something about that soon. In fact, I thought of writing it, writing this morning, but I started working on another poem. Oh, and you probably read the one about the Santa Ana winds and the, the death of the soldier. I don't know if you read that one. Meg, it's called. And it's really interesting because it has to do with my, at, she died when she was 100, but she was in her 90s when she was sweeping. And, you know, it has, you know, the similarity with nature and being an observer, but then this like kind of consistency is that nature has its own consistencies, right? And we, as part of nature, have ours as well. And Meg's consistency was in sweeping after the Santa Anas. She would be in charge of that, no matter how old she was, until she was probably 98 or 97. She couldn't do it anymore. But, you know, she was always consistent. We knew what was going to happen. I knew the sound that was going to occur after the Santa Anas. It was going to be her sweeping all of those leaves. And what happens is nature, you know, those moments in nature or with people remind me of stories. And so that leads me to stories always. I don't know any other way, actually. That's how I live in the world. And I also know how grounding it is to be in nature, just, you know, like it is when I write. So when I take a walk. It's that solitude that, that I gain from being out. Uh, even if there are people on the beach, <laughs> I'm in my own solitude reciting a poem into the ocean. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Yes. No. And I did read Two Dying Bees this morning. Oh, you did? Yeah. You I read that. Yeah. That one. 
Yeah. Uh, oh, okay. It's yes. on the, um, I will include a link in the show notes. To That's great. I don't remember where that one was published. It's in the Armenian Poetry Project. Oh, that's right. I forgot yeah. about that. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs> um, you mentioned that you write every day. What does your practice look like? My practice maybe has slightly changed. And that honestly, this is a little bit of another topic, but when I really decluttered everything in my house, I remember I had several stacks. And of course, I recently found some more, but it's okay. I had several stacks by my bed that I'd piled up. And I thought, oh, when am I going to go through that? And then one day I did. And what I did was I took all the poems and I piled up all of my edits. Sometimes I had like 20 edits for one poem. You know, um, uh, so I piled them up. I organized all of them. And so in that respect, the way my practice has changed is that uh, I do look at my work, my previous work that has, is not complete. I do consider that part of my process now very much so. And I really relish in editing them in in a way that I feel over the years, I've gained more of an understanding of how to make them more present, even if they were written in the past. And also um, present also, uh, how can I say, in maybe addressing something that is also very present in my life, a theme uh, or a situation. Um, so my, my practice is that I don't necessarily write all day, but it's with me all day. So in the early morning or late at night are my favorite times to write. Sort of when I think most people are asleep somehow. (laughs) Of course, the whole world is awake at some point in whatever region or zone. But I, that early morning uh, really gives me time to reflect and be more quiet is really what it is. Or if it's late at night, um, it does the same, has the same effect for me. I probably will say I might focus for about an hour or so, but then throughout the day, it just comes like it washes over me. Um, through the day. And sometimes I don't get to write every day. I think when the whole pandemic started, I think it was just got me a little discombobulated. Um, and what I did was in order to make sure I focus, I got a few of my friends and my husband included, he's also a poet. And we, you know, this, that's our Saturday night. We hang out and we read poetry, um, our own and others. And that helps, like, it keeps a thread going, you know, through this sort of um, little upended time that we have. You have 20 years of experience in community building through your workshops. And you've led community building workshops for all sorts of different uh, entities and at different places. I know you've done some work with healthcare, uh, healthcare audiences. 
You've also uh, taught at the, G the J. Paul Getty Museum, at the Fowler Museum at UCLA, um, other museums and programs such as Upward Bound. How has poetry helped you build community with these different groups? And what do you think is the, the uh, I don't say the hook, but what is the, the vehicle? Why is poetry such a good vehicle in community building? So one of the ways that I connect with students is through their own stories. So I think that people, I, first of all, depends on the age group. For those who might have a certain idea of poetry, they might think it's something outside of themselves. But what I like to assure them is that it's something actually within each of us. As much as we are human, we um, can write poetry. I, you know, I, I walk into my workshops, whether with young people or with adults and professionals, and I bring poetry with me because I am under the belief that everyone can write a poem. I have no doubt that someone's going to write a poem when they're in my class. It, will it be their most powerful poem they ever write? Not necessarily, but they can get there. And what I like to provide are the tools. So I am open to what students write. I am open to showing them how to create more powerful poetry or more powerful metaphors. And I'm always under the belief that it can be done. I have no doubt. I remember um, one of my one of the people who hired me actually to do some of my, uh, to work with leaders in the healthcare industry, I also happened to teach, it was a coincidence, her son in one of my classes, her son who sometimes um, doesn't always follow the rules. And so she told me that that was his favorite part <laughs> in class. <laughs> now that doesn't mean I don't have rules for behavior in the class. It means that I go outside of the rules of what some of his English teachers might suggest and it, it, or, or what he expects they would suggest. And so, but I'm also still strict in the sense that I say, are you showing me or are you telling me this information? So I have sort of my own rules that might be different than others' rules. And they're not just mine. I believe they're the rules of, of poetry, of writing powerful poetry. Not just because I've observed that, it's just because I know others have observed that as well. So I think that when people have the opportunity to be engaged with their own stories, with their own thoughts, with their own feelings, and that is given value in a workshop, why wouldn't they be engaged? Yep. At the heart of environmental interpretation is information. However, interpretation is not just about information. One of the forefathers of the field, Freeman Tilden, is uh, often quoted as having said, the aim of interpretation is not instruction, but provocation. How can poetry help with this? And how can it be used to 
reveal an object, a landscape, or a naturally occurring event? Wow. Um, because I think as each individual, we bring some, something different to observation. You know, we, we um, depending on our experiences, depending on our interpretation of our own lives, we, I think, observe differently. And because of that, we're going to, we're going to show a moment in nature different than the person sitting next to us. So I think that in that respect, interpretation uh, provokes something different in each of us. That's not even a choice, I think. That just happens. You know, I would have a totally different interpretation, you know, observing insects than my husband would. Let me just give you that example. (laughs) (laughs) And I say that just not because just because I'm a girl and he's a boy, right? Mm -hmm. It's because I grew up in a suburb in New Jersey and he grew up in El Salvador, you know, tying a string around a beetle and using it like a helicopter. So when I would see a beetle in the house, (laughs) can you please take care of that? I'm not going near the beetle, you know? Um, And he just looks at me and thinks, I used to play with them. I've lived in the jungle for weeks at a time. When my father was exiled from Honduras into Guatemala, I lived in a jungle for with him um, because he wasn't supposed to be in Guatemala either, you know? And so he's had such different experiences than I have. So uh, in that respect, he's going to be able to look at something and really give you a completely different poem than I am. You know, I even have, I do have a poem actually about, uh, in a book of mine called Imprint, I have a poem about how he was eight when he was in Guatemala and he learned how to fish with his hands. He learned how to put his, you know, hand in the water and be still like the indigenous person who taught him there was Mayan, and then he would just close his hand around the fish because the fish would come to inside his palm, to the warmth of his palm, and all he had to do was close it. And I was like, wow. So it's like that for me, it was that moment that was fascinating that he taught, told me about. Um, so it's a wonderful story. Yeah. You are absolutely right. Everyone approaches. Uh, nature differently. They all have different life experiences, different relationships. Like for example, as I said earlier, my approach to nature tends to be the field guide approach. You know, (laughs) I I just, I I assess things as a check, you know, a box. It's not that I'm always like keying things out, identifying things, but that's my, you know, that's my thing. I have a, a field guide collection in my personal library because I love to see how people have interpreted plants, you know, and the different ways they've affected the plants. So, for example, in the poem, Two Dying Bees, you would do what? Mm. I would um, I would talk about them 
aging and becoming still, um, well, either on the sidewalk, because sometimes when I see them on the sidewalk, I pick them up, I talk to them, and I move them out of the way. Oh, I love that. That's a poem right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not a field guide, though, but no, a poem. not a field guide, yeah. <laughs> and, um, or at the entrance of the hive, my first project in grad school was a pollination ecology project, and I oh, used to wow. take care of the hives. And so I've seen them, you know, hanging out at the entrance or, or just on the ground and leaf litter, you know, slowing mm-hmm. down and then, and being still. Mm-hmm. But is that still a field guide way of looking at it? No, no, it's not. <laughs> so the poetry is already seeping in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Tanya. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That was, Happy yes. for that influence. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, you get the credit for that for sure. <laughs> Poetry does first, but yes, <laughs> I'll take a little bit, a little bit. <laughs> um, with with your experience with people in your workshops, uh, what do they see after a workshop that they didn't see before when it when the workshop began? You know, um, this one, there are several things. Uh, I don't know why this is coming up, but I'll say this first. I had, I taught in a private school uh, a couple of times this past year. And, you know, it be, when it's an after-school program, it's a little bit harder for me because not everyone's going to say, oh, mom, could I take that poetry class? Because they don't. The magic happens when they're in a regular class and I show up and then they get surprised, right? That they suddenly can write. So I, I then depend on the parents either pushing their kids or, you know, I had a, I had second through sixth graders. And that's a little tough, actually. It's a big range. But I had about um, the first class that we did, I had maybe five second graders and then about eight or nine more second graders took it because all the second graders told the second graders how much fun it was, you know, because they're more open. But initially, my one biggest fan of the second graders who said, can't we do this for a thousand days? Can't we do poetry for a thousand days? She would come crying the first (laughs) few classes because they were so afraid because they were the older kids there and they were so afraid that they couldn't do it. And then they found out that they could. And it was so great because neither of them cried at all by the end. In fact, they got out again, I got up proudly and recited their poems during the um, end of the series, which was only like six weeks. And then they took it again. And I think what they discover no matter their age, and especially I'm going to point out the boys, because it is true that the boys don't always have as much opportunity to express themselves. We do give girls a little bit more of that open space. Of course, not much else sometimes for girls, but we do give them their open space to have feelings more than we do boys. So I think that uh, the boys get a little bit more surprised that they can express themselves and that they actually enjoy the writing. 
And the fact that they enjoy it is what makes me really happy because that helps engage them more. And then the more engaged they are, the more empowered they can become. They do like the idea of becoming more powerful, of writing more um, poems that are more powerful or that they can actually make something more powerful. Um, And I, (laughs) I remember one class that I had, I had 36 students in this summer program it was in Glendale. It was Glendale Youth Alliance. And uh, it was many years ago, and they needed somebody to help with English and with writing, with language arts. And so they knew I wrote poetry. They knew that that's what I did. So they hired me. It was a um, youth development program. So they actually uh, were getting trained to do summer jobs, but they also had this academic portion of the program. I taught poetry four days a week, four hours a day (laughs) for one month. (laughs) That was a lot of poetry. And those kids, there were 36 kids, 17 were boys. They're all teenagers. (laughs) And they, um, they all spoke English, but it was in Glendale. So they all spoke Armenian, which, um, except for one who was Baha'i. It was a challenging class for everybody. You know what? In the end, I'll never forget this one kid. He was 17 years old. He walked in and he looked at me like, poetry, are you serious? And I remember he wrote that these are, this poetry is for children. I don't know why we're doing this. By the time the post-test came, or evaluation. He said, can you please tell me what I need to do to become a poet? Wow. <laughs> I was like, he was so, and this other boys would come up to me. They would come up to me and they would say, Miss, Miss Demirjian, did he really write that? Like they had no respect for this person who was just tended to be a little bit macho. And, you know, but when he sat down to write a poem, It was always the most powerful in the class. Everyone was surprised, and so was he. It was so great to see somebody completely unexpected for themselves and for every, the other 35 kids in the class who knew him from high school, to hear him read his poems. (laughs) It was great. So, So I think it's the surprise. They surprise themselves. They surprise their parents. And um, they don't surprise me too much, but they make me happy. What, in, in your years of experience, you've been teaching poetry for 30 years, mm-hmm. uh, reading and writing poetry for 30 years. What do you uh, wish people understood about poetry? What would you like them to understand? That it's in our daily lives. It's not outside of ourselves. Um, It's like saying, what would you like someone to understand about nature? It's part of our environment. It's part of our daily life. It's, It's part of where we come from. If they could take, if poetry lived this part of the brain, like right here, if they could take their interpretation of it out so that we can write together 
that's what I would want. That is the opportunity that I would want. And not because I want everyone to be my student. No, um, if I could have a brief moment for those who might not believe that they can write, then they can go anywhere they want, take all the classes they want. But if they have this foundation of understanding that it is already within them to write a poem, then I, then if I could help with that foundation, I feel like I've done my job. I can definitely uh, attest that you've helped me see differently. <laughs> And think differently. I'd like you to one day think about writing a poem about the map. Oh, yes. This, this map. <laughs> yeah, that one or the one you drew that you ta- told me about. Oh. Mm-hmm. Um, and see yeah. where that takes you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just... Yeah. Well, do I? And I think, you know, I, I might actually still have that somewhere. in. That would be cool. Somewhere. Maybe you could yeah. frame it and put it up in your office, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is there is there anything you'd like to say that you haven't had an opportunity to say? What do you want me to ask you? Let me ask you something. Mm-hmm. What would you wish you knew about poetry before you took my class? That it wasn't a foreign language. My interpretation my impression was that I couldn't get there. It was, I've read poetry here and there, but it felt like it had to come from a different place, a place that I wasn't at or couldn't find. Or, and but that's not the case at all, as I found out. That is, it is not a foreign language. It is not, it's not foreign at all. As, as you said, it's everywhere. And uh, the process that you walked us through is very uh, calming and peaceful. And, and, um, and, it, and it's really, it's engaging, but at the same time of being engaging, what I, li- what I like, what struck me about your workshop is that it's very engaging, but it's also sitting still. It's, it's a practice of, of, of sitting still. You gave us room to sit still. Um, and also be very engaged, if that makes sense. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense to me. And and so so I think that um, when you're, for example, journaling about nature, mm-hmm. I mean, what do you do? But you must sit still. Yeah. You know, how, and, and, and I really believe that, that understanding a subject through poetry right, leads us to a place of understanding we might not have gotten to as soon as we do through poetry. Because while you're understanding the leaf in front of you, you know what I mean, or, or the tree or, or the plant or the insect, or whatever it might be, I believe the truth is you're also understanding a part of yourself too. And it's like a, it's almost like even a shortcut, <laughs> you know what I mean? To understanding something at a deeper level because you're understanding yourself. So um, that, that's what I interpret 
or what I think about when I see nature, you know, because it's reflecting on, it's reflecting a part of us in, in, in a moment of time, you know? And so um, I think that's a great way to then engage people in a, a field like those in the field with, you know, with the people you work with and who work with you and you connect, it's a great way of being able to engage not only those people, but also the people they want to engage to be interested what they're interested in, in the, in the work of nature or the nature of their work, either way, I think you always want to pull people in and poetry is a way of doing that because it's a way of people having conversation in a, in a different way. Um, and it's in relating to people at a different level, just like it is relating to nature in a different level. So whether you read Mary Oliver or you might read Emily Dickinson, you know, or mm-hmm. someone else or read the field notes that yeah. someone wrote, you know, it might be interesting if someone could interpret a poem through someone's field notes. I wonder what that would look like or be like. Yeah. Oh, that, that, that'd be good. Cause it's true. You know, when you, when, or when I journal, and write it's it's surface observations and some thoughts and 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 some reflection but as you said writing it in, in as a form of poetry it's uh it's a different look it bumps it up a, a little bit it's a closer look and it's less uh wordy you know mm-hmm. and you drop some of the baggage Mm-hmm. And the words that you might normally use in that situation, and it really hones in your your thinking. Mm-hmm. I read your uh, po- your poet about Emily Dickinson. Oh, as well. That was it. You found that one too. <laughs> <laughs> like that's really old. <laughs> yeah, and that's amazing. So You're a good researcher. <laughs> I can see why you do field work. <laughs> And uh, your worm biology one as well. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that wasn't quite field work, but <laughs> for sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but your um, that your um, reflections about Emily Dickinson, it's it's really great because you know Emily Dickinson before she was wrote poetry, she kept an herbarium. You know, she would collect plants, and you know, studied botany. And there's a book about her herbarium. That's cool. Uh, that's not surprising. I love Emily Dickinson and I love Mary Oliver also. Um, if you ever read her work, if you haven't, check her out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I will do that. <laughs> well, thank you, Tina, so much for oh, stopping you. by. I loved it. <laughs> and, um, and again, thank you for, for showing me a different way of, of seeing seeing things and becoming a better listener. I am happy to hear that. That is, that's, you know, thank you. It's a gift. Where can people find you online? Well, they can find me at www.poetryconsults.com. They can also find me on Instagram. 
which is going to be a new feed. It's the handle is under my name, Tina Demirjian. And they will notice that I have some offerings on there they can participate in. My main focus is on engagement and empowerment and in using poetry to find meaning, mindfulness, and play. So thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Tina. To learn more about Tina and to read examples of her poetry, visit the links in the show notes. If you'd like to learn poetry with Tina in person, you're invited to join the workshop that she'll be leading for Talatera Cowork. The workshop is called Talatera on Poetry. Use poetry to engage your subject, your audience, and yourself. And this workshop will be held in May. I am really excited, Tanya, to be able to be part of this workshop because I really think it gives everyone an opportunity to hone in on their favorite topic. They get to bring their subject with them because we're going to be doing it virtually uh, or in a virtual space. So everyone will get sort of an introduction to help get the juices flowing, to have fun connecting with the people who are also working online, but then to be able to bring their own subject with them, whether it's something they have with them physically or it's maybe even their field notes they have with them to reinterpret <laughs> um, through poetry, they will have an opportunity to do so and to share that and also to, to talk about how to use what they wrote as a way of engaging new audiences or continuing to engage current audiences. I do see poetry as a tool for that as well. It's a tool to understand ourselves, the world outside of us, but also to engage people in that which we love. So I look forward to it. Talatera is a podcast for and about independent educators working in natural resource fields and environmental education. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and colleagues. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Tanya Marion.